Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Dist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk using your own computer and printer. Right now, get a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer by going to Stamps.com and using the promo code THEGIST. It's Thursday, July 16th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So Caitlyn Jenner got a Courage Award, an ESPY on ESPN last night. And I know that a couple of uh, foolish people were against it, but there are also a couple of normally thoughtful voices from the sports world who didn't like that. My take, I mean, it's an ESPY. And also, some good could come of it. But Bob Costas said that... Oh, this was a tabloid play. He thought ESPN was being crass, supported Caitlyn Jenner. He just thought this was to get ratings. Of course it was. I say it was also to make a statement. It could possibly help people. Now, Frank DeFord, this was, the award was the Arthur Ashe Courage Award, and Frank DeFord was very good friends with Arthur Ashe. And DeFord just said that his idea was that Caitlyn Jenner, not the best person to get this award, give it to a trans athlete who's less well-known. You know, how much courage, DeFord said, does Caitlyn Jenner, the rich, the famous, the resourceful Caitlyn Jenner really show? So, of course, DeFord was lightly disagreed with on social media. No! he was called a dinosaur and a sexist and transphobic. I think the word you're looking for is disagree. You disagree with him. But DeFord is none of those things. DeFord is, in my opinion, the greatest living sports journalist in America. I was on a panel with him about a year ago. I used the opportunity to uh, ask him a one question, one question only. And you know, Frank DeFord, he's a gentleman. He's very, I mean, athletes love him. Will Chamberlain and Arthur Ashe and the list goes on, even though sometimes he's really hard on him. So with that in mind, well, here's a question I asked him. Who's the biggest jerk you ever had to deal with in the world of sports? Don King, the boxing promoter. I'm going to do a story on him. He says, yeah, great. I'm going to Las Vegas like next Tuesday. Come on a flight with me. We'll have the whole way to talk. I said, fine. I bought a ticket first class to sit next to him. I get on a plane, he doesn't show up. So a minute before the plane takes off, I jump off. And I call him up, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Uh, I said, well, you could have called me. He said, well, I, you know, and he gives me a song and dance. So we set an appointment two weeks later at his office. I walk in, he says, hello, into his office, sit down at his desk, he says, excuse me, I gotta go out for a minute. An hour later, he doesn't come back. I got up and left. I mean, I had never been stood up once, but twice. Five years later, he calls me and invites me to come over for a barbecue, which I did. He never apologized. 
But I just thought, I don't believe this. So I went over and had a barbecue with Don King. <laughs> and that's, that was my last occasion with him. He laughed the whole time as long as we were telling stories about Don King. Anything else he didn't want to talk about. And that was, that barbecue was probably the barbecue that uh, Mike Tyson's winnings paid for. Mike Tyson was there, as a matter of fact. Tyson was there, and, and, and at one point we were sitting on a stoop. This is the east side of New York. And a woman came by, and he went, you know, he's got a real high voice. He said, wait a minute. And he ran after her, and she, she tried to pick her up, and she says, I don't like you. Don't you like anything about me? She says, I like your tie. So he took off his tie and gave it to her and came back and sat on a stoop with me. End of story. <laughs> on the show today, El Chapo busted out of prison. The Mexican drug lord didn't even need to impress the guard with his manly endowment or paint some art for her. No, when you oversee a gigantic drug operation, you have more resources than that. You don't have to put up with the indignities of wooing a guard, he wrote out on the rails. And we'll talk about what, if anything, can be done to curb the drug cartels. But first, the landscape of social issues in America has changed so much, even over the last few months, according to the polls, according to the courts, according to the pundits. So how will Republicans Republicans react? Are their battlegrounds now only going to be economic battlegrounds, or can a version of the culture wars be waged all the way to the White House? We'll discuss with my favorite conservative smart guy, Raihan Salam, right now. Raihan Salam is a columnist for Slate and the executive editor of National Review. Hello, Raihan. Hello, Mike. There's been so much news affecting politics and conservatism. I get so excited to talk to you. But I want to ask you this. So we saw a bunch of polls indicating that America is generally trending what we call towards the progressive or left. You can tell me what you make of them. We saw a Supreme Court case that legalized gay marriage. It seems like the idea of traditional social conservatism, the issues that social conservatives attach themselves to, won elections on, it seems like those ideas are on the wane. I'll just ask for your general assessment of that observation and where you think conservatives should go, given what it seems that the country is saying right now. Well, I'd say that same-sex marriage is a very distinctive issue where it is absolutely the case that the country as a whole has moved very quickly uh, towards what's traditionally been identified as a more progressive direction. But when you look at people under the age of 40, for example, among Republicans, there is majority support for same-sex marriage. There are a lot of people who don't believe that there's any tension between being a conservative and being in favor of same-sex marriage. There is another issue, however, uh, where you've seen a kind of different movement. If you look at abortion, that's an issue where pro-life sentiment remains pretty robust. And, you know, one theory as to why that's the case is that there is very high parent-child correlation in views on abortion. And uh, also, there's very high correlation with family size. Mm -hmm. So basically, a bigger chunk of the millennial generation comes from big families that tended to be pro-life. And so you've actually got a lot of people who are both pro-life and pro-same-sex marriage. And I kind of feel like that's a space that is going to be more interesting and more assertive in the years to come. Do you you think that 12 years ago, uh, the idea of the Christian right was maybe new to people and it was presented as, well, this is just driving our politics and look how George Bush manipulates the Christian right. Don't hear so much about this monolith, the Christian right. Is the Christian right still a thing? Is it the most important thing in the Republican Party? How much will the Christian right 
dictate what our politics are going to be in the years to come? Well, I think that part of this is about primary politics and part of this is about a concentration of voters that might matter in certain discrete contests. So, you know, this used to be a country in which white Protestants were an overwhelming numerical majority. They still represent a very big chunk of the population. But then it's also, well, how many of those guys are observant? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so if you're looking at mid-century America, the share of Americans who were going to church once a week was very, very high. And so you found those guys in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Today, the number of Protestants, particularly Protestant evangelicals, who are going to church once a week, it's a much smaller group, and they're overwhelmingly Republican. So because they're overwhelmingly Republican, they're going to have outsized influence in yes. the Republican coalition. But it's certainly true that you know there was a time in the 80s when you had groups called the moral majority, mm -hmm. let's say, that could assert that they represent this kind of silent majority that is not being represented in our public life. And I think today, the claim that they represent a decisive majority is just not tenable. But that's also led to some bigger coalitions. So the idea that you'd have uh, Southern Baptists joining forces with Catholics on various social issues, that's actually a pretty new idea. Uh, and I think that you're going to see more of these odd bedfellows coalitions. You're going to see, you know, kind of more religious believers across different denominations and, and also beyond Christianity who are going to join together. I guess underlining a lot of my questions is the idea that in politics, things will change. Parties might change. And... It's been put forth that the Republican Party and conservative thought in general will have to change and should change to emphasize more of the economic, less of the cultural, to get away from polls show the minority of opinions that Americans have. You just don't see it like that. You just think the parties and the, the conservative thought will be equally as animated by cultural issues as they have been for the last 20 years? I think there are going to be different cultural issues. Okay. I guess my suggestion is that, you know, cultural issues are not a fixed static thing. They change depending on the context. Before Roe v. Wade, abortion was not a defining, central, Goddard-Dameron-style issue that defined our politics. Uh, and then after it, it did. I think that same-sex marriage is not going to go that way. But I think that, you know, we're at the very beginning of a really huge social experience. Experiment. For example, if you look at the number of kids who are growing up in families uh, where there are multiple fathers in the household, it's really staggering. It varies across different groups, but it's really quite staggering. And it's also a majority of kids in African-American households. We don't know how that's going to play out. That's actually entirely new in, in the history of the world. And I think that, you know, we don't know exactly what those social issues will look like. Or, for example, in much of Europe, a big social issue is that you've got people from North Africa and other places who are second generation, sometimes even third generation, who are not fully integrated mm -hmm. into their societies. I think that we might see something like that in the United States, too. So, you know, nationalism, sense of national identity, these are big social and cultural issues that are very potent in many democracies. And I think that that's likely to become more the case in the United States in the future than in the past. So I just don't buy this idea that, you know, something called cultural issues will go away, particularly when they really undergird so much of the changes in terms of rising inequality, immobility from the bottom, and what have you. Okay, but one idea about what the Supreme Court did was it did Republican candidates a favor by taking these, those, the ones we've been talking about, those social issues off the table. Do you subscribe to that idea? 
you know, that obviously is a comforting story for Republicans. But I think the trouble is that you now have this other dynamic in which you have a handful of Republican candidates who are saying, well, I favor a constitutional amendment yeah. uh, to roll this decision back. And here's the thing that might play well with some primary voters, but it's wildly unrealistic. Are you going to do this thing where you're setting up unrealistic expectations? You're stoking them in a way that, you know, might make sense in the context of a 2016 primary, but it might actually hurt Republicans in 2020, 2024. I don't know. I totally get that story. I buy the idea that Republicans will be able to say, oh, well, this is settled. Got to move on, guys. But I wonder if that's just wishful thinking. Well, of the three or four leading candidates, the one who has said that is Scott Walker. Do you think it was a mistake for Walker to say he supports this amendment? It seems in breaking with at least the uh, um, image he's been putting forth. And, you know, people have put forward that he's willing to win the primary in order to lose the election. Scott Walker has frankly said so many different things (laughs) about marriage that, uh, you know, and this is the latest one, to be sure. Uh, But there was a time a few months ago when he said, hey, wouldn't it be interesting if state governments got out of the business of marriage, which is an idea that one hears from, you know, people on the more radical libertarian side of things. So, you know, will it help him? Will it hurt him? Uh, I just think, you know, I would like him to explain to me how he would actually go about passing this amendment. Because, you know, we have a process. It's in the Constitution. We kind of know roughly what that would look like. You know, does he think that that's going to work? That's the follow-up I'd ask him. But, you know, it seems to me like a bit of a nothing burger. But... You know, I mean, I, I can I can kind of see why he's doing it. Well, if that nothing burger is made with Iowa fed beef, then he's doing the right thing politically. <laughs> Rehan Salam is a columnist for Slate and the executive editor of National Review. Joins us from time to time. I always enjoy it. Thank you, Rehan. Well, I enjoy it too. Thank you, Mike. I have many enemies, but I would never visit the indignities of the post office upon them. In fact, I would recommend to them, maybe I wouldn't, they are my enemies, but you are my friends. So therefore, I will recommend an alternative to you. Enemies get the post office, friends get stamps.com. With stamps.com, you could buy and print official U.S. postage right now from your computer and printer. Stamps.com will send you a digital scale. It automatically calculates the exact postage you need for any letter or package, any class of mail. Compare that to a postage meter. This wins. You don't have to waste your time with the post office. You print it out. The postal carrier comes. The mail carrier comes. Says, thanks. You just save time. You just save money. The promo code, the gist, can be used to qualify for a special offer. It's a no-risk trial. It's a $110 bonus offer. It includes the free digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the Gist. So when Joaquin Guzman Loera, known as El Chapo, flew the coop of a Mexico prison, it turns out he really may have come close to flying the coop, or at least he, reports indicate, used birds to fly down a tunnel to see if the air was good. There, in that tunnel, he encountered a motorbike on rails and made his escape, thus embarrassing the Mexican government and also bringing up bigger questions of combating narcotics on the international stage. Joining me now is Vanda Felbab-Brown. She is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Hello, Vanda. Uh, Hi, how are you? I'm well. So I'm not going to ask you how embarrassing or how bad is it that El Chapo has escaped, because it's bad. 
Yes, it did. It embarrasses the Mexican government. It erodes whatever faith there was in the rule of law. It makes Mexican authorities, you question them the next time this comes up. My question is this. How important was it that he was even captured in the first place? One less El Chapo. Does that do anything? It was important, I think, for a symbolic reason, as well as a sense that um, total impunity does not pervade Mexico. And it is really this broader question of impunity, impunity of certainly the big criminals uh, who um, have great capacity to corrupt as well as resort to violence, but also impunity of uh, the overall system in Mexico, including key politicians. And you were right to uh, not ask whether it's embarrassing, because it's very embarrassing. But it's not just the act itself. I think it's the deeper context of many a scandal, many a crisis, uh, of the justice system, of the lack of rule of law, of impunity, that this is yet another, perhaps most dramatic symbol of. Tell me about President uh, Peña Nieto. He, how close an ally is he to the United States in this specific issue of fighting the drug traffickers? Because it's been reported that there was, shall we say, poor coordination between Mexican and American authorities when it came to detaining and containing El Chapo. President Enrique Peña Nieto came to power. He came to power after six years of a very close cooperation between the U.S. and Mexico on security issues under President Felipe Calderón. And uh, Peña Nieto comes from the PRI, the party that ruled Mexico for 71 years. Uh, his predecessor was from the opposition party, PAN. And the pre-party had uh, long uh, had a difficult uh, relationship with the United States on a host of issues, including on security cooperation and organized crime. That changed when PAN and Felipe Calderón were in power. When Peña Nieto assumes the presidency, he is reportedly shocked to find out the extent of U.S. involvement, presence, advising on anti-crime matters. And in the first uh, months of his administration, he really severely curtails, if not outright, severs uh, that relationship, much to the dismay of uh, U.S. law enforcement officials. Why would a new administration come in and just undo the cooperation? Was it more important to him to show either to a constituency at home or for some other reason to show independence? Did he not believe the Americans were really helping? Why would he have made that calculation in the first place? It was a combination of factors. Uh, one is just the historic predisposition of the pre uh, of um, believing that the, Grisco, that the gringos should uh, uh, have a distance from Mexico and fearing that the U.S. would dominate and meddle inappropriately in Mexican domestic affairs. Look, I am convinced that Mexican authorities up to the president are mishandling this, have mishandled Chapo. But I wonder, is there such a thing as correctly or properly from a political or law enforcement standpoint taking on the drug cartels. I mean, they have so much more money than the Mexican people. They can bribe officials much more than officials can get paid. It doesn't seem like there are too many mechanisms that can be used to really fight these cartels, or am I too cynical? Well, um, clearly, uh, it's a major challenge. However, countries do succeed in taming their criminals. Uh, obviously, there is massive drug distribution in the United States. Some of the very same drug trafficking groups, including the Sinaloa cartel, operate in the U.S. 
yet they behave strikingly differently. We don't have 60,000, 70,000, 80,000 people killed in a matter of six years. Similarly, you can look at comparisons with East Asia. Um, indeed, many of the governments are not democratic, no doubt about that. But even in countries with democracy like Indonesia, where there is massive smuggling of drugs and substantial production, the violence that is associated is very different. And so this needs to become a key priority for the government, reducing the violence, reducing the extortion, reducing the utter sense of impunity and brazenness with which criminals behave. Vanda Felbab-Brown is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And now the spiel, not on my watch, man. Go set a watchman. Let me tell you what my reaction is. I can't get past the musicality of the title. There are just some names and some words I always associate with a theme song. It's like some version of synesthesia. When I was a kid and ever I heard Lee Iacocca in my head, it was the Tonight Show theme. Lee Iacocca, da-da-da-da-da-da. Same with the Saudi arms dealer Adnan Khashoggi. Adnan Khashoggi, da-da-da-da-da-da. Now uh, NPR has a science guy, Shankar Vedantam. To me, that's Shankar Vedantam lives in a church where a wedding just was. The show This American Life, I always paced onto it. This American life, do, 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 entertainment, this American life. So go set a watchman to me has been, go tell Aunt Rhody, go set a watchman, go set a watchman, go set a watchman that you pooped on your legacy. Okay, so Atticus is a racist or was in an early version. What do we do with all the little Atticuses, the little Atticai, Atticus, Atticus? Okay, of course, the only reason anyone was ever named Atticus is because we look at our children as a way to pat ourselves on the back for literary references and also some self-congratulations that you're an open-minded parent. You name your kid Atticus. Well, at least Atticus, though his name has been ruined, at least his younger brothers are fine. Kunta Kinte and Tonto Goldfarb, they will go through life unencumbered by their names. It also emerged that Harper Lee sent out a letter two years before To Kill a Mockingbird came out in 1960. She listed a half dozen ideas that she thought she could write about all these other kind of books. I have that list before me. You ready? To disembowel a panda, to skewer a tuna, to strangle a flamingo, to defenestrate a musk ox, to fillet a narwhal, to flummox a buffalo, the Cordell Stewart story. I don't know. She must have been prescient. Uh, then there was going to be, I mean, she got really, she got really mercenary eventually. A horn to the gut, the narwhal's revenge. That was if the narwhal book to fillet a narwhal of that, that sold well. And then she was going to release all these unpublished prequels to these books where we find out that the panda never really liked bamboo or that the flamingo harbored a dark and mysterious secret. You know, he was adopted or that the narwhal was racist or that the muskox was racist or that Cordell Stewart was racist. They were really racist. That was the thing that she was playing with. Harper Lee was back then. So I'm supposed to be upset, I guess, by Go Set a Watchman, by the fact that they sullied Atticus's name or the fact that they probably published this without Harper Lee's full endorsement. 
But think about this book is a literary sensation. Okay, think about our last few literary sensations in this in this country. Fifty Shades of Grey, The Da Vinci Code, Twilight, Hunger Games, Harry Potter, black, black, black for kids, for kids, for kids. The biggest sellers of 2014. You ready? The Fault in Our Stars, one of those Diary of a Wimpy Kids books, and Divergent, the fourth biggest bestseller, Everybody Poops. Okay, that wasn't the fourth biggest. But you know what was? Bill O'Reilly's book. It was the only book written for adults that sold more than a million copies. He wrote a book called Everybody Poops. No, his book was called Killing Patton. So this is good. It's a serious book. It's full of ideas. It doesn't take place in a dystopian future. It actually takes place in a dystopian recent past. Did Harper Lee really want it to be published? I think the greatest work of fiction is the story that her lawyer, agent, and publishers are telling. But the two great critiques of this book seem to be that it has just so much in common with To Kill a Mockingbird, passage after passage, as has been documented. That's critique number one. Critique number two, that it's so different from To Kill a Mockingbird, like Atticus Finch. Oh my God, he once attended a Klan rally. So To understand the ire about this, you have to understand that Atticus Finch has ceased to be a literary figure. He's more like a deity, and Gregory Peck's portrayal in the movie didn't actually flesh him out as a real person. It it godded him up, if anything. And therefore, what's seen to be done to him is some version of sacrilege. Atticus went from a fairly uncomplicated hero, he was seen through the eyes of a seven-year-old, to sort of like a statue. And in the last few weeks, I guess we have been discussing about tearing down statues of white men in the South. Now, it's been done. But actually, I do think it's unfair to confer a status on anybody, any literary figure, that godlike status. To Kill a Mockingbird, the original, has many strengths. The language was rich. The mood was evocative. But the lessons were pat and the morals were easy. I would say it is a good, very good to great book, just not the solution to real-life problems. This book, Watchmen, it's less a great book, it's less pleasing too, because it takes those easy answers and all those solid pieces of fatherly advice, advice that seemed like it could save the world, advice like, there's a lot of ugly things in this world, son, I wish I could keep them all away from you, that's never possible, or you never really understand the person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb inside his skin and walk around in it. That sort of advice makes you wonder about the person spewing the advice. But I look at Watchmen as a glimpse into an artistic process. It's an early draft. Guess what? That means it's not as good as the final draft. The final draft is held as one of the great works of American fiction. It stands to reason that the not-quite-finished product would be less than one of the great works of American fiction. Harper Lee's original novel was not flawless, but it was uncomplicated. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the producer of The Gist, and she has unearthed an early version of Silence of the Lambs where Hannibal Lecter isn't a serial killer nicknamed Hannibal the Cannibal. In fact, he's a white-collar criminal named Chuck Slater, the pecuniary resource misappropriator. Joel Meyer thinks he's found an early version of a book from the Ian Fleming estate, which has James Bond as a botanist with debilitating allergies who relies on an inhaler. Andy Bowers has been pouring through the Melville archives. He found a version of Moby Dick where Ahab is obsessed with a pair of corduroys, and he spends the action of the novel searching all over New England in an attempt to track down the wide whale. The gist is on Yo. You know the app Yo? It sends you 
the word go whenever it's ready, and we'll do that for the gist. I have the numbers. 1,143 people subscribe to the word podcast on Yo, and that'll pop up as soon as the gist is ready every day. So we have 1,143 subscribing. And based on this, we know how many people actually click on it based on the Yo. Yesterday it was eight. We can get that number up. Yo. The gist. Originally, the character of Mike Pesco was cast as a sassy school crossing guard whose catchphrase was, you just ain't listening. Good reconsideration. And thanks for listening.